Congregation, this afternoon we deal with Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9. first part of the Apostles' Creed about God the Father in our creation, and we confess, Lord, say, nine, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father, in him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful Father. So far our confession. Beloved in the Lord, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we mentioned it this morning already too, but there are big differences between the life circumstances of people in society in general and also in the church. You see that too. Some people just seem to have everything going for them, and they enjoy good health, they have a good job, good income. Or they have a business that does well, grows, lots of opportunities to get ahead. On the other hand, you have people who struggle with health difficulties, maybe even every day on a daily basis. They're stuck with work which they don't enjoy and they feel they're trapped in their job. They're not happy to go to work in the mornings. They have all kinds of difficulties and that bring constant tensions in, in relationships. But they just seem to fall from one disappointment into another in their lives and they just can't seem to get over those things. How are we to see these differences between people's circumstances? Can we say that prosperity is always a sign of God's favor and blessing, while disappointment and struggle in people's lives is always a sign of God's disfavor and wrath? That kind of, you realize that kind of approach is going to bring you into difficulty, right? You wonder why people who don't seem to deserve it enjoy blessings while others who love and serve the Lord end up having to, if you see it that way, bear the brunt of God's disfavor. It doesn't make sense, especially not for Christians who in Jesus Christ the Savior have the promise of God's constant favor. Well, with that issue in mind, I proclaim to you what we confess in Lord's Day 9 with this theme. In His Word, God explains what He's doing. And we see two things. First of all, adversity is not necessarily a sign of God's wrath. 
And secondly, God chastens his children for their sanctification. So first of all, adversity isn't necessarily a sign of God's wrath. Congregation in Lord's Day 9, we confess that the creator of all things, who is for the sake of Christ his Son, our Father, our faithful Father, that he's the one who upholds and governs everything by his eternal counsel and providence. He controls everything that takes place. He leads everything in a certain direction. He has a goal. He's a plan for, for everything. Well, if we confess that he's leading everything to a certain goal, what conclusion should we draw from what is happening in the history of this world and in the history of the lives of his people in our own history? What is God's purpose with what is taking place? A lot of people struggle to explain certain major things that have taken place in history. For instance, take one of the world wars in the more recent past and all the trauma and the tragedy brought on so many millions and millions of people. Incomprehensible. Innocent civilians, too. So much death and destructions, destruction, so many millions of people's lives affected even to today. Was God's hand in those wars in a special way? Were those wars signs of God's wrath? Or take a traumatic event in your own life, a sickness you struggle with, or the death of a loved one, or some awful experience in the past that affects your life right up to the present, think of sexual abuse or something like that, can wreck a life. Why did God allow those things to happen to us? What should we conclude from those things when they happen to us? What should we conclude from that about God's attitude or intentions with respect to ourselves? Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the Lord warns us in the Bible not to draw hasty and unwarranted conclusions from events like I just mentioned. We have to be careful with interpreting what God is doing in certain events, also in our own lives. Think of what we read in Luke 13. It describes at the beginning of that chapter how Pilate had mingled the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. And later on, Jesus mentioned 18 people who had been killed when the Tower of Siloam had fallen on them. Maybe it was under construction or so. The tower fell on them and killed 18 people. And those things are mentioned in the context of how to interpret those events. That's why Jesus posed that question in Luke 13, verse 2. Do you suppose that because that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans, because they suffered such things? See, apparently, those present at the time had drawn their own conclusions about what had happened with those Galileans. They had been killed by Pilate's soldiers while they were bringing sacrifices, maybe in the temple even. And that was terrible for them, not just because they were killed, but especially because of the desecration of their sacrifices. Their blood mixed with the blood of atonement. 
that they were sacrificing for forgiveness, the forgiveness of their sins. Why, why did God allow that to happen to them and to those sacrifices? They died while they were worshiping God. Wasn't that evidence that God was not accepting their sacrifices? That he wasn't pleased with them because of certain sins they must have committed? That they must have sins that they were not asking atonement for? That's how the people there apparently had reasoned. Look again at how the Lord Jesus responded to them in verse 2. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? You see, the Jews in those days suffered, uh, they, they uh, interpreted suffering and, and tragedy as punishment, direct punishment of God against the sins of people who were uh, affected. The greater the suffering, the greater the sins of those people. Uh, those sins must have been. They believed in divine retribution in this life. You see the same thing elsewhere in the New Testament, for instance, in John 9, where Jesus and his disciples came across this uh, man born blind. And then the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They made a connection between uh, this blind, these parents, and, and their blind child. They must have sinned to have this handicapped son. And even Jesus' disciples in that case made that connection between the man's handicap and the personal guilt of the parents. So, you see, the, the general idea at the time was that those who fear the Lord and keep His commandments will be blessed. They'll have, it. They'll, they'll have good. They'll be protected from bad things. And those who are disobedient and unfaithful to God, they will be punished with misfortune and distress and with sorrow. And you don't only find that idea in the New Testament, Jesus' days on earth... It was already uh, way before in the Old Testament. You see it in Job's friends. When they came to commiserate with Job, they saw how great his pain and distress was, and, and then they concluded this man must have committed some terrible sin that he was hiding, trying to hide from everyone, trying to hide from God. That's why God was making him suffer so much. Well, it was that, with that idea of retribution from God that those people in Luke 13 concluded that those Galileans must have uh, committed some pretty, pretty terrible sins. They suffered terrible fate. They must have done terrible things against God. And congregation, it's very instructive to see how the Lord Jesus, how he reacts and responds to that assumption. Note that he strongly rejects that interpretation of what had taken place, the interpretation of those people. He asked, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? I tell you, I declare to you, he's saying, no. He says, not at all. They didn't suffer what they did because God was punishing them for certain awful sins they must have committed. You can't make that direct connection. And then he emphasizes what he said by mentioning another example of something that had recently also been in the news in Palestine. 
mentions those 18 people killed when that tower of Siloam caved in. He asked, do you think that those people who were killed there were worse sinners than all the other people living in Jerusalem? Now this example, it's actually more, even more direct than the killing of those people who were bringing sacrifices. The people who were killed while sacrificing had been killed by another person, by Pilate. And in the view of the people there, they were just Galileans who weren't held in high esteem because they were pretty rough people, hicks who lived far away from the temple in Jerusalem. But the people killed by the fall of that tower had been Jerusalemites, lived in the holy city close to the temple. And they were killed not by others but by a disaster by an act of God, we could say, direct act of God. And using the reasoning about retribution common in those days, as we described before, the conclusion everyone should have come to, and especially in that instance, was that God was punishing those people because they must have committed some awful sins. They were worse sinners than everybody else in the holy city. And Jesus says again with emphasis, verse 3, I tell you, no, you have no right to draw such conclusions. Those events do not, those disasters, they don't, do not show how God felt about those people at all. You can't determine God's purposes in those kind of events which he allows to take place with certain people. God doesn't tell us what he's doing. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to explain to us what his purposes are. We, therefore, cannot draw conclusions about why God allows one person to suffer while another person has an easy ride in life. He doesn't give us insight into that. It belongs to the secret things of God. Job experienced that in a very painful way. His friends thought they could figure out why God was letting him suffer so terribly. And they drew the conclusion Job must have committed some great and secret sin that God was punishing him for at the time. But in the end, God showed them they were totally wrong to conclude that that's the reason Job was suffering. God showed them in the book of Job that he, God, is the creator of all things and that he is high and exalted, and that he does what pleases him, and that he doesn't have to account, give account to anybody for what he's doing. He is just and right in all he does, even if we don't see that, even if we don't understand that, we have to believe it. His ways are incomprehensible to us. We just have to accept what he's doing, that he's doing the right thing. And trust that he's a faithful father. Congregation, you see then how the word of God shows us that we need to humbly accept that we can't reason out why God does what he does to whom he does. We can't draw conclusions about how God thinks or feels about certain people on the basis of things that, that are happening to them. Bad things are happening to these people. God, they must not be in favor with God. 
you know, like chronic sickness, which some people have to cope with from, every, from day to day, or lost opportunities and disappointments others have to deal with in their lives. If we can't conclude from Job's unbearable suffering that he must have been an especially great sinner, then we cannot conclude that from the suffering that some endure today either, that they must have done something wrong to deserve what they get. Now, we can't think that somebody who gets cancer or parents who receive a handicapped child or, or people whose business fails, that they must be greater sinners in some way than, than other people are because these things are happening to them. And the other way around, too. We can't conclude that God is blessing others with success and prosperity because they're such good people or because we're such good people. Because success and prosperity, congregation, that can be a curse. That can be a curse, too. God can give that to people to harden them in their unbelief. They don't need God then. No, we, we can't directly connect success to God's blessing nor suffering directly to God's curse and disfavor. Now, all this time, all this can make you, you wonder about places in the Bible, you know, where that connection is made. Think of the time of the judges and of the kings when God clearly showed his anger by causing trouble for his people. Where he clearly showed his favor by delivering them and making them prosper again. Think of the drought in the days of King Ahab. God brought it about because Israel worshipped and served Baal. Think of the death of King Herod in the New Testament, mentioned in Acts 12. Herod exalted himself before the people so that they said, this man, this is not a man, this is a God. But the Lord struck Herod on the spot because he did not give glory to God. He was struck immediately by an angel and he died an awful death, eaten by worms. You see God's punishment in that, God's wrath. Or think of what it says about the sickness and deaths plaguing the congregation of Corinth, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. The Apostle Paul calls that a judgment of the Lord, which is due to lack of love and discernment in the congregation and going to the Lord's Supper that way. Some were sick and some have died. Well, do those examples not show us that we can still draw conclusions about God's attitude from certain events that take place in people's lives? Well, congregation, it doesn't because you have to note in the examples that we used that it was the Lord God who explained himself in those cases. It wasn't people who interpreted the reason for those events, but it was God who revealed why he was doing what he did, and he doesn't always do that. We know that God was punishing people or he was blessing people in those specific occasions because God himself said, that's what I'm doing. 
but that God reveals what he is doing with those disasters or that suffering in those cases doesn't give us the right then to try to draw conclusions about what God is doing today in his life or her life or their lives. When there's trouble or suffering, we have to humbly admit our knowledge is limited. So what do disasters or travails tell us today? We have to avoid simplistic answers. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are way higher than our thoughts. We can't deduce what God's thoughts and purposes are with specific disasters or struggles in people's lives, but we have to be humbly careful in that regard. Article 13 of the Belgic Confession, we confess there, and I'm quoting now from Article 13 of the Belgic Confession, and as to his actions surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire further than our capacity allows. But with the greatest humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God which are hidden from us, and we content ourselves that we are pupils of Christ who only have to learn those things which he teaches us in his word without transgressing these limits. Be humble about it. What does God teach us in his word in the Bible? He does connect sin and suffering in a general way, a very general way. Without sin, there would have never been any suffering at all in the world. In a perfect world, there would have been no trouble or suffering. It, it all came about because of sin, our sin too. God's wrath in this world because of sin. Romans 1.18, we read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then God punishes wickedness and unrighteousness with a just judgment, both now and eternally. So yes, also in this life, now, when wicked people suffer here, they receive their just reward in this life already. It's beginning here for them. And that's why we can speak of God's judgment and suffering in a, in a, in a general sense. But we all need to remember that we actually all merited the eternal punishment of hell, which is much worse than anyone here on earth suffers. And in that sense, we can say we all deserve suffering. But not all suffering is automatically punishment from God. Only for the wicked is suffering in this life punishment from God. For those who embrace Jesus Christ, who suffered everything that they deserve to suffer, their suffering is not punishment, but chastisement. It's discipline for their good, as we'll see. But you realize then that nobody can definitely know for whom suffering is punishment and for whom it's discipline for good. That final word belongs to God. Oh, sometimes you, you can make a direct connection, right, between sin and certain events. For instance, if somebody drinks too much alcohol, then that person has, doesn't have to be surprised if he or she gets liver problems later on in life. But not every alcoholic gets liver problems. Or if someone isn't a good steward of the, the money God gives, that person shouldn't be surprised if he or she falls from one financial problem into the next. 
Let's be honest, a lot of our troubles are actually self-inflicted. We have to constantly examine ourselves and humble ourselves before God as, as we confess there in the Belgian Confession. The Apostle Paul writes 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So, so constantly judge yourself. Be willing to humbly examine yourself in order to get rid of sinful behaviors. Otherwise, in the end, God will judge us for those behaviors. And God gives us opportunity to examine ourselves when he chastens us. And that brings us to our second point. God chastens his children for their sanctification. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, Romans 8, verse 28, it says that God works for the good in all things for those who love him. All things. In all things. That means prosperity as well as adversity. He's working for good. We can be sure of that because we belong to Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God in our place. He is our faithful, loving Father in Christ. So as long as we embrace Christ, then God is working all things, also our suffering and our frustrations and our troubles in this life for our good so that we make progress towards the fullness of our salvation. And, and you see what that means? It means that poverty, financial struggles, sickness, disappointments, sorrows, they're not curses from God for Christians, but they're blessings. In fact, we could even say they are sign of God's favor. We can interpret that for believers when they're chastened. It's a sign of God's favor. We read part of Hebrews 12, where Proverbs is quoted. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Here, chastening or discipline is seen as an expression of love. If a father loves his son, he's going to discipline him so he learns to walk uprightly. So he doesn't make the same mistake over and over again in his life. No, it isn't so that God's love just manifests itself in success and prosperity. As we mentioned, prosperity can be a curse. It's a curse to those who don't love God. He uses it to give people over to hardening and unbelief. Think of the situation in our own country where prosperity has pushed so many people actually farther away from God than drawing them closer to him. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 12. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So difficulties and struggles in your life are actually a sign that you're children of God. For believers, proves you're really his children. He loves his children enough to straighten their course in this fallen life. When they go off course, he'll chasten them to get them on course again. Every time again, 
We need chastening. And it's a sign of God's love and affection in Christ. Congregation, like our parents, discipline us for our good. So God chastens us so that we may be partakers of his holiness, as it says in Hebrews 12, verse 10. He wants us to grow towards maturity in Christ, the holiness of Christ. He wants to sanctify us through chastening. And that's a pretty important thing to keep in mind when you're trying to understand your own life experiences. Chastening is a manifestation of your Father in Christ's love for you. And that we have to admit, right, sometimes we don't experience our suffering or our hardships as positive. You know, an unexpected huge bill. You wonder, where in the world does the money come from? It's a little frustrating. Chastening of the Lord. Keep you humble. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 11, now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. In reality, though, your Father in heaven is busy sanctifying you. He's preparing you for the life to come, to live with Christ in his glory. Your troubles may frustrate at first then, but ultimately they humble you. They bring you to seek his face again, to once again depend on God's grace, to see his faithfulness again. See, by, by faith you come to understand what God is doing in your life then. Only through faith and in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ will things become clear to you for your own life. By faith you come to realize that he's chastening you and that chastening makes sense even though it's painful, frustrating, sorrowful. It has a glorious divine purpose. God is making you holy because without holiness, it says in Hebrews 12 also, no one will see God. You need that. You see all this in action in the book of Job, for instance. Job learned not to be self-righteous. He learned to humbly depend on God even more than he did before. And we all need to learn again and again and again to live out of God's grace like that, don't we? To repent and to seek his face again. That's why the Lord Jesus emphasized repentance in that first passage we touched on. He said to those around him in Luke 13 who had been asking about those people who had been killed, he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He used Pilate's killing of those Galileans and the disaster with that Tower of Siloam to warn everyone of their own sins. Don't speculate about the sins of others. But examine yourself and repent of your own sins while you have the time. Otherwise, you will perish. And then he's not even just thinking of dying in this life, but eternal death. That's what we need to learn from what happens in the world and in our own lives too then. We stand before a holy God. He seeks positive fruit in our lives. He uses events and adversity as well as prosperity to draw us to faith and repentance and to thankfulness. So brothers and sisters, boys and girls, when God brings adversity in this world, 
Don't be so quick to see it as a punishment, as God's wrath on those people who suffer because of that. Now remember that for God's children in Christ, hardships are actually chastening from God to sanctify them, to prepare them to live with Christ in his glory. So let's grow in humility, grow in love, in faithfulness, in doing good through what we experience. That's, that's God's purpose after all. Examine yourselves. Let what you see around you and deal with yourself, let it cause you to constantly examine yourself and humble yourself before God in repentance. Laying aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares and running with endurance the race set before you, always looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. That's what he's doing, finishing your faith. Amen.